That's not how you write it. This is how I write my initials. What's that little r there in a little k? Let's turn to 1 Timothy 6.20 today, just for a text verse. 1 Timothy 6.20, a thesis verse, you might say, for today's message. And today's one of those messages, I did a lot of this with Revelation, Rev the Book series, where I would put Rev in toto, the, the total message of Revelation. Today's one of those that has to do with the impact and the power on the level of our own time of Hebrews in toto, the totality of this, what I call heaven-sent homily, called Hebrews. And today's title is going to be, I'm going to spell this because I don't know if, it's a German word. By the time you guys get done hearing a few messages here, you're going to be multilingual, so... Zeitgeist, you've heard me mention that a lot. That's a German word, Zeitgeist. And today's message, curiously, even though it's going to be totally focused on Christ, ultimately, I'm going to call it Zeitgeist and the Antichrist. Zeitgeist and the Antichrist. Only because... When we teach a biblical document like Hebrews, we're up against something. And it's, we're up against something that does not take kindly to a message of hope, a message of supernatural love and faith. The zeitgeist and the antichrist. Part of my job description as a pastor teacher is to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry, and that's included for me a kind of behind-the-scenes overseeing of the development of spiritual gifts, and especially the communicative gifts, and I must say that I'm very pleased with how those gifts are developing in our assembly, whether on the level of the Sunday school or teenage ministries or on the Wednesday messages, which I sometimes listen to once, sometimes twice, the, to see the mastery develop and to oversee these gifts has been a great privilege. So I'm very grateful to God for that and for those who have stepped up and stepped into those communicative positions. When we have to do with the study of a particular biblical document, we're necessarily confronting the zeitgeist, which is basically the spirit of the age. Paul talks specifically about the spirit of the age now that I think of it in 1 Corinthians 2.12. You have not received the spirit of the age, but you've received rather the spirit of God so that you may understand the things that have been freely given to you by God. So the spirit of God, contrary to the spirit of this age, reveals the things that are freely given to us by God. And so Hebrews comes right out and calls this spirit the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29. He's the one with whom we have companionship and who gives us a foretaste of the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells at home. So we have to deal, when we're dealing with a biblical document, we can misinterpret it if we're not aware of the, the zeitgeist at the time it was written, what the writer was up against at the time it was written, what he was trying to communicate. So I'm always doing an intentionality analysis of the author. And... When we communicate that book or that document, we have to be understanding of the spirit of the age as it's formulated in our time. There's specific things about the spirit of the age in our time that rear their ugly heads, that did not in the same way do so in the time of the writing. 
The New Testament, therefore, has a less flattering description than zeitgeist or spirit of the age. Paul calls it this present evil age in Galatians 1.4, this present evil age. You say, it's not right to use the word evil. I, I don't care. It's an evil age. If you lay it next to and compare it with the age to come, it's an evil age. It's Galatians 1.4. In fact, Paul thinks it's something from which we must be delivered. He never talks about being delivered from hell because he wasn't a believer in what we classically determine as hell, which is the Christian zeitgeist. But to be delivered from this present evil age, and not only that, that deliverance can only and exclusively come through Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, according to the will of God. Galatians 1, 4, and 5, according to the will of God, he gave himself for our sins. That kind of summarizes up Hebrews 10, because according to and by the will of God, he offered himself for our sins. He did it. And the greatest insight that the Lord has ever given to me in these past few decades is yet to be developed in this congregation. And I gave you a couple of hints last week. I'm not going to give you too many more yet. But the zeitgeist has been around since the fall of Adam, according to the Bible. It has adapted and evolved, if I may use those terms, through historical eras. But it's remained the same only in this. It propounds and supports something which John 8.44, Romans 1.25, and 2 Thessalonians 2.11 calls the lie. A large component of which is that which Paul called, and that's where we get to 1 Timothy 6.20, falsely called knowledge, gnosis, falsely called pseudo or pseudonymous, pseudonymous knowledge. Pseudo pseudonymonosios. And when I first read that verse, I read it in the King James. I had an old Holman King James Bible. I still like Holman, the Christian Standard Bible. But it would say falsely called science. And that's intriguing to me because there's something around today, whether you know it or not, and if you haven't been exposed to it in the past few years, you haven't been paying attention. Falsely called science. In fact, the Latin term has that very phrase, falsely called science. It has scientia, science, false science. We call it scientism. It's not science, it's scientism. It's part of the zeitgeist. And it is a component that will totally shave off the higher levels of human living, living and make human beings gravitate to what's basically bestial or animalistic, self-serving only, etc. And so that's how powerful it is. And the English version, again, science falsely so-called, King James. The Latin Vulgate describes as false nominus scientia. So the word science is used in these translations. What Timothy is warning, what Paul is warning Timothy about in his own time is what we call Gnosticism. I hadn't named it yet when Paul wrote, but he hit something that was being developed. We see it today in the pseudonymous or pseudonymous scrolls. There are many scrolls that came out about Mary Magdalene and the so-called Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Judas. They are Dead Sea Scrolls. They are Gnostic Scrolls. They are antagonistic to the true meaning of the scriptures. They are of the spirit of Antichrist, as we're going to see in a moment. Fascinatingly today, the zeitgeist is largely determined by a kind of Gnosticism, again. 
that is informed by that which is rightly termed scientism. And again, that's, we have to carefully distinguish scientism from science, truly so-called science. And there is that. And Christianity doesn't have any gripes with that kind of science. Today's scientism is a largely materialistic and atheistic system of belief with its own dogma, doctrines, and creed. It's dependent upon the faith of people. It's, it's, you got to believe it to be part of the system. And it's avowed rejection of the unnecessary and outmoded God hypothesis. That's what some of the old philosophers did and Stephen Hawking tried to do in his so-called theory of everything books or whatever, which are really kind of a thinly veiled idiocy is what I would call it. I just can't be nice. I'm sorry about that stuff. But they tried to undo what is called the God hypothesis. We don't need the God hypothesis to figure into our definition of reality itself and the cosmos, the universe. And so you have other people coming in with thinly veiled or maybe not even veiled idiocy, Dawkins and his God delusion. The God hypothesis has become the God delusion. God, let's rule him completely out if we can, they want to do. It's, but that's profoundly influenced current Western worldview. And it even goes so far as the, the fact that people can't even properly perceive reality, and we'll get into that in a moment. That's when they begin to doubt who they are, what they are. And even if they are human, because after all, what's a human, and etc. And so this scientism, it's a kind of neo-Gnosticism, which we study in the New Testament writers are always up against that. It militates against what is deemed childish views. Your Christian views are now deemed childish views. Traditional Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam and other monotheistic belief systems or world religions. And this new scientism has actually been elevated to the position of a religion. And its adherents are very religious, and if you don't believe it, wait until you see how they punish heretics. And they're already punishing heretics by not giving them any public forum and punishing them quite literally, criminally, for speaking the truth. And then the truth comes out later and they say, oh, we're sorry we persecuted you, but yeah, that's fine, that's okay. In any case, this scientism, distinguished from science per se, is at least related to an ideology, and it's based more in ideology than science, philosophy, or religion. Anybody who knows anything about Darwinism knows that it's not a scientific system, but it's an extra-scientific belief, and an, it is rooted in an ideology, and not in science, not in evidence-based fact, not in data. But you wouldn't know that because those who publish works that are truly scientific in that realm and that totally demolish the whole idea of macroevolution, which is apes to anthropoid, that kind of thing, they don't, they don't get the press, they don't get the publishing because people treasure and cherish the materialistic, scientific, atheistic viewpoint. For one thing, it lets them fulfill all their lusts without punitive action on them. And they cherish those lusts and that greed or whatever it is. This scientistic Gnosticism is in collusion with the spirit of Antichrist. Now that's boldly said, but that's exactly right. I'm letting the wolves out today, and by that I mean Wolfhart, Pannenberg, Wolfgang Smith, other guys with wolves in their names, but they're, they're really sheep in wolves' clothing, not wolves in sheep's clothing. 
This scientific Gnosticism, then, is in collusion with the spirit of Antichrist. Now, this is where an, an old friend of mine, Wolf, Wolf Hart Pannenberg, and I don't know him personally, but I read his systematic theology. In volume three, he clarifies the notion of Antichrist. Now, I grew up in churches, and I've, I've been in the Roman Catholic Church, Pentecostal Church, Charismatic Church, Fundamentalist Church, Cultic Churches, Christian communes, demon-casting-out churches, tongue-speaking churches. I've been to all those churches, been to all of them, and was steeped in all of them. And I heard very early about this Antichrist. He's kind of a boogeyman that's going to come. He's a prophetic, historic figure, and he's going to come, and that's going to signal the time of the end. The problem with that is there are only four mentions to the word Antichrist, and every single one of them is in 1 John, Alpha John, the first epistle by John the Elder. And he clarifies in those four times what the Antichrist is. And it is not a coming figure breaking in on the scene. You might think so because you've been reading Christian fantasies like the Left Behind series. That's not even good fantasy, but it's fantasy. And so Christians help with the zeitgeist by not really confronting it and taking it down. They just have their own perception, which doesn't really help. And so in, I just remembered this note, it's on page 636, and I should have remembered the, the page. I have photographic memory sometimes when I think of things that really hit me. I remember what they looked like, what note they were in, note 326, page 636, systematic theology, read it in 2010 or whatever. And he wrote in 326, note 326, Antichrist is not just an individual figure. 1 John 2.18 refers already to many such figures at issue, then, is a type of the seducer, and that's 2 John 7. So there are three references to Antichrist in 1 John, one more in 2 John. The seducer, 2 John verse 7, who woos away from the true Messiah. The note goes on to say, early Christianity saw a link here to false teachers, but in a special way, the type of Antichrist finds manifestation in the alternative and especially this worldly doctrines of redemption and self-redemption to which we are exposed in our modern societies. Probably the greatest this-worldly doctrine of redemption or self-redemption is Marxism. The only problem with Marxism is it doesn't believe in resurrection. And some, one guy said, well, if we're going to believe that everybody benefits from Marxism, then there has to be reincarnation so that everybody who's already been persecuted under Marxism can come alive again. And, of course, they forget about a thing, little thing we like to call resurrection. Marxism is a utopian socialism, which is a philosophy held by people that we elect to rule us because we are idiotic. And that this, this is a utopianism that's a, of an antichrist spirit because it's a this-worldly redemption, a this-worldly hope in a utopianism that oddly enough, when you study it historically, hundreds of millions of people under that system get left out into the cold to die of starvation and torture and other things like that. And people that have been there and done that see that happening and see that trend and try to scream from the rooftops where this is leading us. People don't listen, though, because it's hip to be cool with the zeitgeist. Now, it didn't escape my notice that First John, which in, indeed clarifies the notion of the idea of Antichrist, is an epistle which was written specifically to combat Gnosticism. And then it was called Docetic, Docetic Gnosticism, D-O-C-E-T-I-C. Docetic Gnosticism, 
basically denied that Jesus Christ did not come with true human flesh, that he was an appearance of a human being, but not a human person or human being, a human being with true human flesh, physicality like ours. And so it didn't escape my notice that John was fighting a form of Gnosticism called Docetism, which essentially denied the actual physicality of the eternal word made flesh. So John the Elder wrote this, and let's look at it if you stay with 1 Timothy, but let's look at 1 John 2.18. I got the Holman Standard in front of me this time, the updated version. Children, it is the last hour. Reminds me of Hebrews 1.2. In these last days, not in those last days, in these last days. Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, you've heard this. Antichrist is coming. John didn't say that. Paul didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. John in Revelation didn't say that. But there was a rumor circulating, the Antichrist is coming. And guess what Christendom now does? It keeps perpetuating that rumor. The Antichrist, this Antichrist figure is coming. The Antichrist is coming. Who is he going to be? You'd be surprised at the guesses I heard. The first one I heard, someone told me it was going to be Henry Kissinger. I don't think he's up for the job right now. He's like 96 and can barely talk. And so I don't think he's up for it. And left-wing people like to say that right-wing leaders, some people back then said Ronald Reagan because he's got Ronald and Reagan and there's six word six letters in Ronald and six letters in Reagan and his middle name has six letters there it is 666 it's Reagan now and then people that are on the right say it's Obama it's Obama and and people were trying to send me this stuff like I'm supposed to pay intelligent attention to it we believe Obama's the Antichrist look what he did yeah, hate to tell you, if you're a right-winger, Obama isn't the Antichrist. If you're a left-winger, it wasn't Reagan. Because you've heard, Antichrist is coming. And how many preachers do you hear say that? The Antichrist is coming, the Antichrist is coming. The An-. John said, look, that's a rumor. Let me tell you something. There are many antichrists already running around, and the spirit of antichrist is already the zeitgeist in its evil form, and it has many adherents and many students. And a lot of the students today call themselves scientists, and they won't even deal with They've already denied that Jesus has come in the flesh because they've even denied the divine hand in the cosmos. Do you know what happens to people that fail to see that the cosmos is a theophany, an expression of God's divine attributes? you know what happens to us when we do that? We stop seeing the greenness in grass, the redness in apples, the beauty in the sky, and we see a bunch of atomic movements and material moving hurriedly through nothingness. It does something to you. And that's exactly the purpose of the God of this age who seeks to blind the minds of the unbelieving lest the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines into them. Really doesn't want that to happen because that would divert all the glory to another instead of himself. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. You've heard, Antichrist is coming. That's in quotes. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. And he also warned his readers in 2.22, who is the liar? That is, who's the one who propagates this lie, the lie, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This, I think, is the same author who wrote, 
as a beloved disciple, as one of Jesus' favorites, we could say. These things have been written so that you, the reader, might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have, you would have an experience of the life of the age to come in the believing of it. John 20, 31. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? He is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. The unity of divinity in the Father and the Son. So this is how we would say it. We would say anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, is the Antichrist. So it's not an historical figure that's coming. Like, it's not Freddy Krueger. Now, I haven't watched any of those movies, but I saw a preview once, and I was actually thinking, we do watch these things in America, don't we? But we do. Such a person is an antichrist or the antichrist. And they are of the spirit of the evil age. They are of the zeitgeist and friendly. The zeitgeist loves its own. That's why you say, how come this person doesn't get what they, yet these people that are doing evil in the news, we see, how come they don't get what they deserve? Because the zeitgeist loves its own children, that's why, and hates. Well, let's see, what did the zeitgeist vote to do to Jesus, the creator of the cosmos? So, we would say it, and we'd be right. Anyone that denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the an- is the Antichrist, because such a person is of the spirit of the age, and the spirit of the age has its own systematic untruth. Systematic untruth. And the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, so that the light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ doesn't shine into them. So the elder, John the elder, later strengthens this warning by saying, but every spirit, every spirit, meaning every person, who does not confess that Jesus is come in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3. You have heard that he's coming and that he's already in the world now. So what John is trying to do is clarify there isn't an evil antichrist figure coming in the prophetic sense. It's a spirit of the age that's here right now and it's manifested by those who teach in certain ways such as I would say scientism with its identification of God as a hypothesis that we don't need anymore. So obviously they believe that Jesus Christ has not become incarnate to redeem the world because they don't believe that the world was even made by God and that God is even in the picture and that there is even a God. And you don't want to just read this verse to them, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, because you might offend them. In fact, that's a verse I would love to read to them and have, and have offended certain atheists by reading that. So, that was fun. So, whatever the translation, this is the obvious sense. And as Pannenberg also noted, 2 John 7 gives even further clarification to it. So 2 John, verse 7, there's only one chapter. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. It's not a single historical figure ready to come and spring on us. It's already in all those who make these kind of denials and lack of acknowledgement of Jesus Christ's incarnation. So it should be noted that the expression, the Antichrist, and I, and I want you to know this because you're, gonna, you're up against this 
even with Christian friends, and I don't want you to become argumentative with them. It doesn't make any sense, but it's, it's important to talk intelligently and reasonable about this and that the Antichrist is found only in the epistles of John. Nowhere else is the phrase used. Consequently, we must derive our understanding of the doctrine of the Antichrist from the Johannine epistles. So much of the modern Christian interpretation of the Antichrist comes from somewhat fretful announcement, which John quotes, you've heard, Antichrist is coming. Well, I got news for you, he's already here, and it's not a he or a she, it's a spirit of the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist is the Antichrist. It was a popular rumor that he was coming. And so you've, they had heard that Antichrist is coming. But guess who didn't tell them that? John. Guess who didn't tell them that? Jesus. Guess who didn't tell them that? Paul and Peter. None of the apostles did. It was a popular rumor. So there was a rumor that there was a prophetic, evil, satanic figure who was on the historic horizon who would signal the last hour of human history. That's a rumor. And it's believed by millions in Christendom today, especially avid readers of such books as the Left Behind series of fantasy literature. Yes, I called it fantasy literature. John's notion of the Antichrist is that the deceiver and the Antichrist was already in the world when he was writing and that it was a spirit that determined the Christ-denying zeitgeist. That's what he's saying. The Antichrist is the spirit that determines the zeitgeist, the whole spirit of the age with its media. And I don't mean media that you watch on screens. I'm talking media as a means of communication of this Zeitgeist. Although that media too is involved. The proponents of the Antichrist are those who in one way or another propagate the denial of the reality of Jesus Christ. The Christ of God in whom all things are to be recapitulated. So it's become popular not only to individualize the Antichrist into a prophetic boogeyman but to equate this figure with the beast of the book of Revelation. I know you were thinking that, some of you. What about the beast in Revelation? Isn't he the Antichrist? No, he's not. This, too, is an error because the beast, as he's called in Revelation 13 and 17 and other places, is a satirical name for Nero. You know who would have loved the book of Revelation is the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee is a satirist publication that makes satire of things and if you understand satire you know when someone is speaking they're speaking with a kind of a sarcastic humorous undertone John was a satirist he presented Nero one of the most brutal tyrants in history who was around when he wrote presented him as this beast and the 666 works perfectly not for Ronald Reagan, but for Nero Caesar in the gematria of the time. As 666 worked perfect for Nero, 888 works perfect for Jesus. So it's an error to equate this so-called Antichrist figure with the beast of Revelation because the beast is clearly a satirical name for Nero, the inhumanly cruel tyrant of Rome, who was in power at the time of the writing of John's Apocalypse. We did a whole series of that in Rev the Book called Zeroing In on Nero. The time is surely ripe for true eschatology then in our time. The time is truly ripe for a true eschatology, one that aids in the spiritual and mental health of people rather than creating deeper neuroses. Bad Christian theology creates neurosis, psychoneurosis, and sometimes psychosis. Bad so-called Christian eschatology. Now, by reading Wolfgang Smith's books, this time thanks to Tom Bonnet, who put me onto these at first, with an elementary, in my case, it's an elementary and partial comprehension. 
But even in my modicum of comprehension, I've come to understand the present zeitgeist as it's presently manifested with a little more clarity. Now, you've probably heard me say this before. When I used to study Kenneth Wiest, he was my first introduction into Greek exegesis, Kenneth Wiest. I first came to understand the zeitgeist with a little more clarity reading him, and he quoted a guy named R.C. Trench. And this is the definition Trench gave for the zeitgeist. Quote, and I still like this, all that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, at any time current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define. But even though it's impossible to seize and accurately define, it constitutes a most real and effective power being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale, again, inevitably, to exhale. We inhale it and we exhale it. It's the zeitgeist. It's the, the Bible calls it this Satan, the prince of the power of the air, atmosphere. It's an atmospheric thing. It's a zeitgeist. You breathe it in. That's why I love the word of God, because the word of God is breathing in the truth of the word. It's breathing in. The Holy Spirit is breath. Pneuma means breath. He's the holy breath of God. We breathe it in. We also exhale it with love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the spirit. And that's the great antidote. That brings us into a higher elevation of human living in Christ Jesus. It brings us into a a vertical ascent, not I will ascend. It's the opposite. When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. And it lifts us up into a higher integration of human living, which is being cut out from underneath us by the zeitgeist with its scientistic Gnostic viewpoint today. That's why you come to church. You don't come to church to hear a bunch of list of rules that we should follow in our moral ethics in life. And there's that too. But we're up against the zeitgeist here. And most of Christendom, we call it, Christendom, is marching to the beat of the same cosmos, the same zeitgeist. Because what they present against it is really feeble and pathetic in many cases. So one thing I've gotten is a little more clarity on what that is. Very generally and simplistically speaking, Wolfgang Smith, now he's originally from Austria. He graduated from Cornell University when he was 18, usually when people are starting to go to college. And he's a physicist who became a metaphysicist and very Generally speaking, I think he's 92 years old now, but very clear, very lucid. He unveiled the major contributor to this, and I hope I'm not being too scientific today, but the major, one of the first contributors to the modern zeitgeist is Rene Descartes, D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S, and he had a, a system called bifurcationism, which means, this is what it means, and we've all thought this. Like, we'd, I'd talk with my sisters when we were little kids. What if this nothing out here is real, and the only thing that's real is what we see, and it's in here? Well, that's what Rene Descartes said. Basically, perception is reality, and I've always fought against that. Jesus is reality. Your perception changes, but he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your perceptiveness changes. You might go through a little phase as a young woman and think that you're a boy and so you, we used to call it tomboy. But that perception changes. That same young lady will grow up and say, hey, I'm not a boy. I like this, I like boys. Or I like 
this kind of thing or that kind of thing. And so there's phases. If you lock in somebody on a phase of perception when they're an adolescent or a pre-adolescent and then let them make choices based on that perception, that is a catastrophe in the making, a psychological catastrophe in the making. It used to be parents brought up children. I'll leave that at that. But In fact, what is now absolutely offensive to hear is a statement like children obey your parents. What? I'm not even going to go there with wives submit to your husbands. Forget that. I can't even say that anymore. You get people screaming in weddings if you say the word submit. Screaming. Oh, we can't say. Well, studying your life, lady who just screamed, I'm just very happy for the guy you hook up with. But bifurcationism is Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am, of course, is his most famous dictum because, in other words, reality is what I think and what I am is what I think. Despite what's out there, despite what just happened, that doesn't really work in life. Like if you're going home and you're going, ready to go up Coxcomb Hill, there's a light, a traffic light. If it's red, you're better off stopping. But you can say, oh, it's not really there. It's in my perception. Boom, boom, you're gone. So that's a kind of a drastic illustration of it. So already Descartes contributed to a schizoid worldview by his bifurcationist philosophy. And so I like to think that his famous first principle, I think, therefore I am summed up his philosophy. But what it did was limited one's identity and even reality itself to one's perception or thinking. A subjective perceptiveness that can and does, in fact, must change. While reality itself remains the same. For as the Father says to God his Son, in the beginning, Lord, that's the Father talking to his Son, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. And the big insight, hint, hint, is that the moment the Lord laid the foundation of the world is not a past event in some far distant historical past. It is an eternal event which we call the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone says, you can't just say Christ and him crucified because what about the resurrection? And I like what Athanasius said. The resurrection is stored up in the cross. Talk about the cross, you're talking about the resurrection stored up. But I'll tell you what else is stored up in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The creation of the universe. And its integration of heaven and earth is in the cross. We're going to see this. And not to demean the series and TV shows and the movies about Jesus that are coming out, but you can't see Jesus that way by watching The Chosen or The Passion of the Christ or Jesus of Nazareth, as wonderful as those productions can be. If I thought that's all there is to seeing Jesus, I'd say, watch the movie, and I quit. So the father says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Hebrews 1.10. As the scripture says, Jesus is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's reality. My perception isn't reality. My perception may be wrong. Certainly, if I'm colorblind, and I think I partly am, I think I'm partly colorblind, I'm not sure. Um, Am I? Pam said, yeah, I am. So, 
Fortunately, I don't mix up red with green yet. That, wouldn't, that would be embarrassing in a traffic situation. But if I'm colorblind and I look at a, a something that's truly red and I see it as purple or I see it as another color, my perception's wrong. That red isn't wrong. The redness of the red isn't wrong. My perception is wrong. So when you go to a place to have your laundry done and you pick up a card and it says, this is a card of little bits of wisdom from some guy and the first thing says perception is reality, you go, no, it isn't. I think I'll just take my clothes down to the river and beat them with rocks. It's a good bookmark, though. They're free bookmarks. I don't know if you've been to those places, but they're pop psychology or whatever. So human perception of reality changes. Reality, i.e. Jesus Christ, remains the same. We see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, we perceive reality because... Reality is Jesus. Perhaps for Descartes, the proverb pertains. I'd like to sit down with Rene someday and say, interesting you say, I think, therefore I am. There's a verse that says, as he thinks within himself, so he is. And Rene would say, well, then Proverbs 23, 7 supports what I'm thinking. No, it doesn't, because this is talking about the miser, the stingy man, the greedy man. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. So, so much for René Descartes and his bifurcationism. Scientism, or what I like to call scientistic Gnosticism, and I, again, I don't like to use all these fancy terms, but it, I, I have to if I'm going to define what we're up against when we bring you Hebrews. Scientific Gnosticism that determines the present age destroys the Christian life, and that's why it's important to me, pastorally speaking. It destroys the Christian life. It cuts off the higher levels of the higher integration of human living, which, we, which ever since Luther is called in Christo, extra nos, outside of ourselves in Christ. In Christ outside of ourselves. It's a higher integration of human living. And instead, it promotes that curvature in ad se, a curvature into oneself, which is the very definition of all mental illness. A curvature into oneself. And a living outside of oneself in Christ in the higher integration of human living is, in fact, what the true teaching of the scripture inspires, what true eschatology aids and abets, and cosmology, the true study of the cosmos, which is intended by God to be a theophany, an expression of his divinity and his divine invisible attributes. Both Paul and the opponent got that right in Romans 1.20, and I'll explain that someday, soon. Science versus so-called science. Scientism and its friendship with Gnosticism. And true versus false knowledge. That's 1 Timothy 6. Here's my translation of it. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted with you, avoiding irreverent empty speech, and contradictions from the knowledge, or false nominus siente, that falsely bears that name. By professing it, some people have devi deviated from the faith. And then he says, grace be to all of you. Now, even this applies to scientism in 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, because its adherents or its devotees or its disciples can, said, can be said now to be members of a religious sect. This happens with, within the realm of what is called climate science and climate change, etc., in which there is more scientism than you'd care to believe. It's, it's quite extraordinary how much there is. The classic meaning of falsely named also applies to scientism because today's scientism is linked to a resuscitation of the spirit of Gnosticism, thanks primarily to a guy I got to study in college named Carl Gustav Jung. 
a student of Freud, an apostate student of Freud, meaning he didn't stay with Freud. This form of Gnosticism, like its forebear in the philosophy and religion of the Antichrist, is the Antichrist of our time. Scientism, as I understand it, is loosely linked system of dogma that's contrary to true science, that lacks or denies the true data of hard evidence. I'm reading this because I'm trying to give a definition to it. The proponents of which make authoritative-sounding pronouncements that claim to be based on settled or fixed science. They give science, this so-called settled science, the same worship that's due to the word which is forever settled in heaven. In Psalm 1989. So not to believe. Their dogmas are a matter of belief. If you don't believe what they say, watch how they act toward you. (gasps) You're an unbeliever. So it's a matter of faith. Their pronouncements are a matter of faith, and you better believe it. That's the zeitgeist. Not to believe and adhere to such pronouncements constitutes a breach of faith, Consequently, all who don't submit to this subtle science are either apostates or the unwashed heathen who cling to their biblical myths, they say. One such pronouncement is, evolution is a fact. I was told that straight up one day. Well, macroevolution, that is transformist evolution, which involves the change of one species into another over the course of many millennia, is not, in fact, a fact at all. In fact, it's most contrary to a fact that you can possibly get. Macroevolution or transformist evolution. Neither is it supported by any evidence from paleontology or the study of fossils or genetic biology whatsoever. None. None. In fact, evidence exists to the contrary, though it's often quashed by the so-called academy, the consensus academy of science, scientists, scientism, because it doesn't adhere to the treasured zeitgeist, which Carl Jung himself came up against at first as a Christian and said that zeitgeist doesn't like to be trifled with. That's one thing I'll agree with Carl Jung about. Everything else, I disagree. A friend of mine and a relative of mine who is one of my most favored atheist naturalists, I won't say who he is, gave me a book by Carl Jung about Job. And it was supposed to be profoundly theological, and I found that it was profoundly idiotic and childish and infantile almost, in its reasonings against Yahweh, but and in its brilliant human response to what Yahweh did. So this whole idea of transformation of species from apes to anthropoi or from quadrupeds to erect bipeds or porpoises to people is all the stuff of falsely named science, a product of scientism, a scientism that ultimately denies, and that's where I'm interested in it, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So for high school or college students or anyone else interested in following up on the subject of scientism behind the evolutionary doctrine, I would highly recommend Wolfgang Smith's book called Cosmos and Transcendence, and it's very difficult to read if you're me, But there are chapters on evolution that can be helpful and can follow elite. Be a leader instead of a follower for a change. I say that to young people, very young people. Practice to be leaders instead of followers because it's going to end up in the destruction of our civilization entirely. Because Judges 21-25 is the next step. Every person does what's right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel, and that's the atomization and the total wipeout, the total wipeout of civilization. It's interesting that we think about atomic destruction, when atomic destruction literally is not as bad as the atomization of people. 
where there is no more virtues or values created by a higher integration of human living. And so everyone does what's right in their own eyes and damn the other. And if the other gets in my way, then they have to be hurt or they have to be killed or they have to be somehow ostracized, imprisoned, or left in a hole in isolation. They don't have my views. And so, winding down to a close today, and I have, so, I, I have like something that's enough for a book on this, but I'm not going to go all the way through that with that. The current zeitgeist, or evil age, is, by definition, unbelief. It's the evil heart of unbelief, according to Hebrews 3.12. It's aided and abetted by doctrines of men, winds of doctrine, strange doctrines or dogma, and even doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons like macroevolutionism or transformism, Freudian psychology, Marxist political ideology and sociology, and most of all, Jung's deification of the collective unconsciousness of man. So faith in the sense of Hebrews 11.1, 1, which is the substance and assurance of hope for things, hoped for because God who created the universe promised them. And 2 Corinthians 5.7, along with 4.18, is directly contrary to the evil age, which offers neither hope or faith or love. It offers either no hope or false hope, like Marxist utopianism. True eschatology is an aid to mental health. True cosmology is an aid to mental health and to the perception of the elegance and beauty of the universe and of people and of souls and of things. Freudian psychoanalysis, for example, creates neuroses, opens doors to occult influences, creates false dependencies through transference to the therapist. And I'm not against psychoanalysis. I'm not against therapy. I'm not against psychiatric therapy and cognitive therapy and real, the, the, the therapy of reality therapy and those kind of things. But classic Freudian transference where the person that is the therapist gets everything transferred to him or her and then does what one guy did to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys 24 hour a day therapy where he can't think or act or talk to a family member any time of 24 hours a day for nine years and he'll tell you that happened to him Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys there's a wonderful documentary about him a musical genius but had problems with many things and then for nine years had this therapist that was with him 24 hours a day. It was called 24-hour therapy. Now, that's demonic. And so Freudian psychoanalysis, which creates transference to the therapist, opens up the door to occult influence. Marxist philosophy, when practically applied, leaves millions out in the cold to die. Jungian Gnosticism enthrones the Antichrist on the throne that belongs always and exclusively to Jesus the Christ. And it's all part of a concerted plan. A lot of these people I'm talking about, like Freud and Jung and Marx, are basically just useful idiots of the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. And it was Lenin that coined the term useful idiots because he likes the kind of liberal, uh, left-wing-leaning people in America and other kinds of people because he, views that, he would view them as useful idiots to get, get past or get something through that is ruthless, murderous, and intending to destroy. He loves that. So Satan himself loves useful idiots. Today there are millions of them in pulpits. I don't say millions, I'll say thousands. The God of this age then in closing, which is the zeitgeist, veils. He veils not only the gospel of the glory of Christ, the Messiah, but he robs the cosmos itself of its capacity as a theophany, an expression of divine glory. When people be, don't see the cosmos, 
And if you look at the James Webb photos, you, you, you almost get converted back to it. If you've denied the, the cosmos as a creation of God, you might be converted again back to saying only God could do that. There's a picture up there that of, of galaxies and galaxies, and there's actually folds in it and jewel-type things in it. And it's a, it literally looks like a garment in, the, in this fabric of the universe and then I look back to Hebrews and said he will change it like a garment he will change it out like a garment and he spreads it out like a fabric and like a tent and that's exactly what these photographs show from the James Webb telescope exactly it's a fabric there's folds in it even and you go my my God (laughs) my Lord and my God that's the first time my God actually makes sense. Today, it's like part of the zeitgeist. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. What's so exciting to you? I just got a meme. Oh, my God. Well, I just saw the universe as a cosmic uh, theophany, as a, a, a picture of the divine attributes that are invisible. Oh, my God. How's that? The saddest part of this from the pastoral viewpoint is that the human being becomes fragmented by these scientism and by the zeitgeist, even atomized, A-T-O-M-I-Z-E-D. And the only way to be restored to wholeness is called sanctification. Holiness and wholeness are inseparable. And guess what a major theme of Hebrews is? Sanctification. Fragmented, polarized, even atomized societies can be restored to wholeness via sanctification. The advance guard for this is the New Covenant community. The New Covenant community is the advance guard in this restoration, this rectification, this restitution this reparation, if you want to call it that, not through activism or its own energy and action, but through a graced participation in the divine nature, graced imitation of Christ through divine willing and action in the members of this community, a community which is a tent pitched by the Lord and not man. So, Father, we thank you, and we look forward to our own sanctification as members of the New Covenant community. We look forward to the ministry of the good word of God and that our tasting of the good word of God is a foretaste of the age to come. We thank you that you've granted to our lives purpose, meaning, definition, clarity, power, capability, capacity, that our lives become a work of art in itself, that all we do in Christ and through Christ has an elegance, the elegance of art and artisanship, the flow like that of music, that we perceive your universe, Father, as a theophany, an expression of your divine invisible attributes, that we Perceive its beauty and its elegance, its extraordinary glory being your glory. And Father, I pray that in the coming days, months, and years, from this pulpit and from elsewhere and from teachers in this place, a true cosmology, a true understanding of the universe a true eschatology, a true understanding of its destiny in Christ, a true Christology, a true seeing of Jesus will be part of an advanced guard for the pulling up of our own present history from a terrible decline. Help us to operate, Father, in the pneumatic higher echelons of living. And we know that it's only possible to have this higher integration of human living 
by a lowliness of mind that humbles itself under your mighty hand to be lifted up in due time. And I pray, Father, that your healing grace will go forth not only toward bodily healing for those in our ministry and those in our families and extended families and friends, that you will speak healing and peace into the households represented here in the homes of our friends and loved ones, even as prayer requests are made continually in urgency. But we also pray that a ministry of healing will come through this word and words spoken from this pulpit and from others who are teaching to bring healing to souls and spirits and the true essential human being. And Father, grant us a love that can only be a love that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is a total and primary love for you and also a love for all humankind and especially a love for one another. And we thank you for this privilege today. Help us not only to identify the zeitgeist, but to put up a shield against it, a shield that is not only defensive, but offensive. And help us to be no longer conformed to the present current evil age and its thinking and its fantasies, but transformed by the renewing of our mind and by the breathing in of the Spirit to be exhaled out in the form of supernatural love, supernatural faith, supernatural hope. And may that hope become contagious. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.